Show me the science with Professor Luke O'Neill. Hello, Luke O'Neill here, and welcome yet again to my Show Me the Science podcast. I love doing these, by the way. I do work in my lab. I'm, I'm a full-time scientist, but to step into the studio here and witter on about something that I've come across that's interesting, and I think people are listening, it's great, so I'm very happy to do it. But the big one this week, we now are entering the twilight zone. This is a bit unusual. It's the science of near-death experiences. Now, you might wonder, why is he talking about that? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it's a fascination. And we've all come across this, haven't we? And we've all read about it. And, of course, what it is is that someone who's clinically dead sad as it may seem, who's brought back to life through resuscitation, say they've seen things. Now, what have they seen? Well, what's strikingly interesting as a scientist is there's something going on here for definite, first and foremost. Uh, remember, we have to use scientific rigour and, and science never sleeps. There's no topic that we're, we're frightened of confronting and the, the death is not a great one, but still. Cross cultures, and you might be talking to someone in Europe or in America or Asia, there's a commonality of what they see in this near-death experience, and you'll all know what this is, I'm sure. They see a bright light, and they're very often heading towards it, down a kind of a tunnel towards the bright light. That's the first thing that's commonly reported. Uh, The second thing is, they do see loved ones who've died. This is the spooky bit. That seems to be a common feature as well. A huge feeling of well-being in the vast majority of people. They feel really great, which is quite nice to hear. A fourth feature is uh, evaluating your life. Now, that's a strange one. We'd all love to evaluate our lives, wouldn't we? Uh, and we do it probably too much these days. But they, they seem to come back and say, oh, I, I looked at my life and I began to think about my life and what mattered to me. And this, this sort of sense of well-being and this sense of looking back on your life and then figuring out what you want seems to be a feature. And many who've had it then say they change. And in fact, there's evidence that even personalities changing after a near-death experience. So you go, say, for example, from being uptight and anxious into someone who's a bit more chilled. And you realise what's important, I guess. And things that you were obsessing about, there might be money or status, they seem to fall away and then you value the things that we should be valuing. Interactions with each other and all those kinds of things. And that's a common feature. Uh, There's a fifth feature, which is some kind of religious experience. Now that one is cultural. So if you're a Christian, you're inclined to see Jesus. Whereas if you're a Muslim, it's Muhammad. So that seems to be built into it somehow, some kind of religious thing. Now, of course, I bet you're wondering, he's a scientist, why is he talking about this? Um, It's just a fascinating thing to think about. And there's recent science on it, which is what's triggering me to tell you all about it, which I will come back to. The other thing, by the way, while I'm at it, to give you the full list, not everybody gets this, but this out-of-body feeling. So you seem to float above your own body and you look down and you see the operating table, you see the doctors and nurses standing around. Again, that seems to be a a common enough feature as well. And all these things are, as I say, are shared between different people. Now, millions of people have reported this. And this is where the science now gets a bit robust. And again, as any regular listeners will know, it's always a numbers game in science. How many people have you studied for things like this? And it's an awful lot of people reporting all these different uh, these different scenarios, and it's important to emphasise that. But this recent study, which I want to tell you about, is in a journal called Resuscitation. Now that's important because it turns out that us scientists, we love to publish. We publish for two reasons maybe more. The first one is get your knowledge, get your discovery out there so other people can see it and then hopefully they'll repeat it in their labs and extend it. 
So when I publish a paper, I'm mainly doing it, well, nowadays I am, uh, mainly doing it to disseminate the information and hopefully other people will take it further down the road. And that's how science advances. And, th and that's how we know what's true in science, by the way. It's called reproducibility. In this case, it's the journal resuscitation. Now, there are other reasons to publish. One, you won't get a grant if you're not publishing to raise money for your research. And then secondly, you won't get promoted if you're in the university. Or... So there's various reasons. But the main reason is to get the stuff out there to allow other people to develop it. And I looked it up. This journal, again, you look at the quality of the journal, by the way. So when I see a paper published, if it's in the journal of... County Wicklow immunology, I might be slightly sceptical. If it's in a big international journal, like, oh, that's better because it's been vetted, you know. So the, so the quality of the journal is important. And this journal resuscitation has a, has a good quality. It's, it's up there among the best journals in this area. Now, obviously, most of the papers in res resuscitation are about resuscitating people. They don't go into this kind of thing. It's a very important branch of science because obviously, say, someone who has died, how long can you you know, after they've died, how long, what's, what's your window to bring them back is one big, very serious thing. If someone who's drowned, I noticed some papers on that. How long have you got and what can you do to bring them back? Things like CPR, of course, cardiopulmonary resuscitation is used. And that, that's what that journal is all about. But this particular publication in the journal, 25 hospitals in the US, in the UK and in Bulgaria, they monitored people who they, who they did resuscitate for these near-death experiences, but more excitingly, brain activity. And that's where the real science comes in. Because obviously, if you can measure something, it's much better than asking someone a question. Because questionnaires can be unreliable. And that's what dog psychology actually is an area. But if you can measure stuff in the brain with the machine and then get numbers out of it, then you know you're on firmer ground. And what they did was they took people who had clinically died. They were flatlining, right, for various reasons. Between 23 and 66 minutes was the time frame, actually. And then they would uh, resuscitate them. And they measured oxygen use, because obviously breathing is a key part of being alive. And then also they measured electrical activity in the brain. And it was very elaborate. I mean, the techniques, there, as you know, there's fantastic brain imaging technologies now. There's MRI. They weren't using that in this study, I don't think. But, but they measured activity in the brain. Was the brain active at all? And of course, guess what? Even though they'd flatlined, they see spikes of brain activity and in different parts of the brain. And that was the first thing that this had been seen before, but, but this is pretty systematic. So in other words, they could see in the person lying on the, the table or whatever, who, who weren't breathing and had no heart activity, flatlining, they could see spikes of activity in the brain. Now that could be the last gasp, I suppose, in the brain in a way. In other words, you are heading in one direction here, basically, and the brain is still firing a bit, but they didn't interpret it in that way. They saw these spikes of brain activity as they said evidence that there was something going on in terms of what they were seeing as it were and what they noticed was the spikes of activity they saw resembled if someone was concentrating on something very hard and if you can't really concentrate and measure brain activity you will see spikes firing away and that resemble that and that was interesting so what were they concentrating on might, might be the next question now of these people a lot of people study again the numbers are important uh, a lot of people 25 hospitals 10% were resuscitated that they couldn't bring back you know from the flatlining uh, all of the people but 10% of the people who they were studying across the hospitals came back and 6 of the people had these near-death experiences. Now, six people doesn't sound like a lot, makes you a bit sceptical because of the numbers again, but it was very well studied and very well annotated, and then, so therefore we can kind of rely on it. And remember, this paper's out there now. The hope is other people will repeat it, get more people to study, and let's see if the findings are robust. Now, let's talk about what the, the spiking activity was. 
It was like concentrating, first of all. It was different to hallucination. Because when you're hallucinating, and you can hallucinate for all kinds of reasons, different spike patterns happen. So one thought was that these near-death experiences are just people seeing things, like hallucinations, you know. And hallucination will happen in different contexts. So when they saw the tunnel and the white light, where they just seeing things, basically, it wasn't real. But it was different hallucination. So that's the first thing that was seen, is, is the first thing that I noticed. And then, of course, they were able to, to sort of kind of pinpoint which parts of the brain were changing, you know, in terms of these spikes, and then would that relate to what they were seeing? Now, of course, if you're a religious persuasion, and lots of people are, and you do think you're on your way to heaven here, and, and you think you are going down a tunnel towards this bright light, you're being welcomed by dead relatives. That's one option. The scientific option is you are kind of just seeing things in a way, and the brain is firing away as, as you're in this situation, and then you're, you interpret that when you wake up as seeing these things. That's more, as a scientist, I have to think that's more likely to be the case. And then the other thing they've been speculating on, are there neurotransmitters firing away here in the near-death experience? And there do seem to be. There's endorphins. Now, that's important because endorphins give you this sense of well-being. People think dopamine is the happy neurotransmitter. And we've all heard about the dopamine rush. That's not true. Dopamine is actually about uh, seeking behavior to try and do something that might create a reward sensation. Its endorphins are much more important for the high, the natural high that we get. And they're tied into it. And, and, and maybe you'd wonder why that is. It could be to make the, an easeful passage, I suppose, after when you die is one idea here. And remember, things like morphine, they mimic endorphins. So you're making a natural morphine-like molecule to make you this sense of well-being. Uh, is part of this for definite and encephalins are the other family so they seem to go up in this situation and create this sense of well-being to ease the passage as I say you might say whatever the word passage means in this context the other thing that I found very interesting was serotonin changes now serotonin 5-HT that is there as well that is tied into hallucination so when you take something like LSD uh, that locks onto the serotonin receptor binds very tightly activates pathways that make you hallucinate and even though the spiking wasn't like hallucination the fact that serotonin has been implicated might explain what you're seeing here in this context like you can't it's hard to believe that something happens and you suddenly are up outside your body looking down it's got to be a type of hallucination of some sort would be the view and then the other two things to to mention are um, hypoxia. So if you cut off oxygen, and of course, if you're if you know if your heart stops, your brain begins to undergo this hypoxic state, and that hypoxic condition might create changes in the brain that create this near that experience. And then one that's very interesting, I think, as well as a drug called ketamine. Now people have heard of ketamine, I imagine. Uh, but ketamine is a drug. It creates what's called a dissociative state. Now what that means is you feel out of it. That's not too technical a term. But certainly this disembodiment, this feeling of the mind-body connection being split, ketamine will create that feeling. So again, they're wondering now if things like serotonin or endorphins or maybe some of the neurotransmitter, that's the ketamine's basically mimicking that. A bit like how morphine is a mimic of natural endorphins. There's going to be neurotransmitters that are mimicking ketamine and creating this dissociative state. And that all tells us then, in a sense, that really what's happening here is, in the context of a near-death experience, is your heart stops beating, you stop breathing, your brain begins to make these neurotransmitters, they begin to create these neural networks in your brain, and if you get resuscitated, there's a memory of those changes, as it were. And largely, they're to do with seeing things, as face it, and hallucination is, is the real 
real possibility here as opposed to you're really on your way to nirvana or whatever but then again if people want to believe that part of it that's fine it is striking that the light features dead relatives are there all those things feature and that will be consistent with the notion of that you're passing on to a different dimension and then again their culture will as well we're taught from childhood that our de- maybe that our dead relatives are in heaven and we might see them this kind of thing so that that's feeding into this in a way but overall then the uh, the overall opinion would be with the surprise from this study in resuscitation was the spiking in the brain happening when you're clinically dead and then they're bringing back from death and then reporting these near-death experiences. And more than likely, as I say, it's down to these neurotransmitters changing. But still a really fascinating topic, I think. We all wonder about these things, don't we? And what, what, what's the use of this research? Well, it's not that particularly useful. It is kind of into the, in the realm of resuscitation, though, because maybe you want, when you're resuscitating someone, you want to see these brain changes, and they might predict that the resuscitation will work, for instance, or there'll be certain things you want to trigger to allow the person to be resuscitated. So there's some kind of use there. But overall, I think this is just just a a very interesting topic, the science of the near-death experience. And as ever, thanks for listening. And of course, my podcast is available every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. And it's a News Talk production.